Find a way to sit that is comfortable and at ease. So this evening is Veterans Day, and I'd like to speak in honor of Veterans Day and the life of the Bodhisattva, somehow to thread that together from the end of last week's Dharma teaching, if some of you were here or remember that. <clears throat> and I want to begin with a poem. Um, by one of our great poets, Margaret Howe. It's a poem that she wrote after the death of her brother. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there, and the draino won't work but smells dangerous, and the crusty dishes have piled up, <clears throat> waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again, the skies a deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, Spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again, and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it. Parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning. What you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call. A letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments, walking, when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I'm living. I remember you. And I start because it is we the living. And we start with the mystery of human incarnation and the fact of our life, which gets lost in certain ways as we go through the quotidian of our day. And yet here we are. And Veterans Day <clears throat> was not originally Veterans Day. It was originally called Armistice Day. <clears throat> and it was celebrated on, at 11 a.m. on 11-11 in 1918 to celebrate the armist signing of the armistice that ended the war to end all wars, which was the First World War, unfortunately misnomered in that fashion. Um, but like those things that happen to us where we forget the origin or the deeper meaning, Armistice Day, which was really a celebration of peace, 
became Veterans Day, which honors our veterans, but somehow its meaning or its vision or its hope got a little bit lost. And of course, Veterans Day is a day of gratitude and thanksgiving for vets and prayers for them and honoring of their dedication and sacrifice and valor and patience. Um, but it also, these holidays like Veterans Day and Memorial Day, I would hope as a culture give us a pause, not just that the banks are closed, but that we actually might reflect a little bit. Well, why do we have veterans? What is this about? My friend who died a year or two ago, James Hillman, great Jungian analyst, um, one of his many books was on the terrible love of war. Kind of a wild title and yet true because people come back from combat and war um, and even though it is horrific, it's also a time that gives meaning and intensity and aliveness and camaraderie, you understand. Um, and yet, everyone who goes to war is a casualty. If you've really been in combat, you are a casualty. There's a story that I've told here once in a while over the last years. Um, having done some work with vets who are returning in different fashions and now part of a couple of projects, one from Congressman Tim Ryan who's trying to start a vets corps um, where these kind of trainings of mindfulness, compassion and so forth, um, we're, we're working on a training for veterans to work with other vets who come back and so forth. <clears throat> but anyway, this was a retreat that I taught with my colleagues Michael Mead and Luis Rodriguez, others in the woods of Mendocino. We've had a series of them and they've had vets and various other folks come, men's retreats. And this particular scene is something that I'll never forget. We'd been there for several days doing mythology studies, meditation practices, storytelling, um, martial arts, uh, a whole variety of poetry, a whole variety of arts really, um, men coming together. And in the evenings we were in this old lodge very deep in the redwoods um, and in a camp where half of it there was no, no electricity, one of these very old camps with stone buildings, stone wood buildings. And at night we'd set candles around the lodge and a hundred so men would gather together as we did. We would do some singing of these beautiful African chants that Maladoma Somme was teaching us. And then men would simply be asked to stand up and talk about what it was for them to be a man in their life. Um, and this particular night, uh, there were a group of gang kids who were there. We also working periodically over the years with young men coming out of street gangs who want to find some other way to live. And the youngest kid there who was 16 stands up and says, um, I got to talk. He said, I'm with you guys now. And I guess he felt safe after a few days. And he said, I don't know what to do, 
because I was down in, you know, he lived in um, Los Angeles somewhere in Watts, um, East Los Angeles. And anyway, he said, I live near the line between the Crips and the Bloods, and I'm out with my homies, and this car comes out from the other territory, and the windows are all dark, and I think, uh-oh, this doesn't look good, and a window comes down, it's going to be maybe a drive-by, and we all start to run, except the youngest kid in the gang can't run very fast, and they start shooting. Um, and he gets hit, and I run. Um, he was my buddy, and and um, the car goes off, and I go back and I hold him, and then the police come, and I'm just holding him as he dies, and they they want to get me off him, and I say no, no, he's my buddy, and and he's just standing there weeping, um, and two guys over from him were a pair of men who'd recently come back from the war in Iraq. Um, and they were Marines, and the young gang kids looked up to the ex-Marines because, you know, on the streets they had nine millimeters, but these guys had big guns and tattoos, and, you know, they were, the, they were like the great warriors. And one of the ex-Marines comes over and puts his arm around this young man, and he says, you did the right thing. When the firefight starts, you got to get down, but you never leave your man. You go back. And so everybody in the room's heart is like breaking at this point. And then this young man stands up, the Marine, he's maybe 23, and he says, I got to talk too. He said, here in this story, <clears throat> the war they got in the streets while I was in the war, he said, and I can't tell you what I saw. But worse, I can't tell you what I did. And that's really the weight on the soul. Um, and he tells this example. He says, like, one night I'm at this checkpoint, and these people are coming up, and it's dusk. And, you know, there's so many suicide bombers, and all these things are happening. And I don't know who the enemy is. And I just say, stop, stop, when this group is approaching. And I shouted in Arabic, stop, you have to stop. We've got to check you. And this one guy keeps, this old guy keeps walking toward us. And finally, I shoot him up because he won't stop. And then I hear everybody screaming and shouting, and my Arabic translator arrives, and he, I said, what are they saying? He said, don't you know the old man was deaf? And so he's standing there weeping. And they're all holding each other. And I'm sitting there, both heartbroken and wondering, all right, how best to respond when Michael Mead stands up. And he says, let me tell you a story. He says, in old Ireland, the greatest of the Irish warriors was a man named Coquulain. And the Irish were insane warriors. Basically, they went into battle naked. They painted themselves up. And mostly, when you saw them, you just ran the other way. But Coquulain was, was the most fierce of them all. Um, and there was some local king or neighboring whatever group that had come to try and take over their kingdom. And he went out with his chariot his horses, um, his bows and lances and weapons, um, and almost single-handedly defeated them. And then he turned his chariot around, and they could see him coming back to the village, bearing down on the village with the spirit of war still in him, as if he was ready to destroy whatever else he saw. 
And this is a really important image when you think about the warriors coming back, because we put them through training to become warriors, to not feel, to be able to kill, but we don't have the other training at the other end. So he's coming, um, and people are terrified, and he's covered with blood, with his weapons in his hand, and what to do. So they run out and they find the old wise woman of the village, and they say, what should we do? And she said, there are three things you have to do. So first, they get all the women out the village in a line, and they bare their breasts. This slows him down. <laughs> and you can hear it even archetypally. It's like remembering the taste of his mother's milk. It's the feminine coming in. When he's slowed down, then they throw a rope around him and they put him in this huge cauldron full of cold water and it hisses off his body and they fill it three times and finally his body is cooled. And then they keep him bound hand and feet and take him and put him on the carpet in front of the local king and queen and sing to him for three days and nights the stories of great warriors and those who've protected the kingdom and so forth and who've come back gradually to till the fields and um, help with the farms and build the buildings and become again part of the living life of the community. And after three days and nights, he's back. And after Michael told that story, then in the dark of the redwoods with candles around the room, 120 men stood up and for half an hour we just sang. And we sang these beautiful, very simple African songs together in these kind of deep voices you would hear. Pura Samine, calling on the grandmothers and grandfathers to hold us all. Um, and we sang them back into their bodies. But of course, the question is, what's going to happen to the 2.4 million people who are coming or have come back from Afghanistan and Iraq and more who've been there, not to speak of the millions who are in those countries traumatized. Who's going to meet people coming off the buses, you know, and coming back in the community and who's going to sing people back into their bodies? Now in Burma where I trained as uh, a monk, um, young men and I use the word young men appropriately, I think, here, for initiation, do one of two things. They either go in the military or they go in the monastery. Um, and um, as a way to mature themselves in some fashion. But unfortunately now, as Burma's become free in these last few years, there's a tiny minority of people, which happens when you lift the repression of dictatorship, who are stirring up a kind of fear and ignorance about other groups, but conflict between Buddhists and Muslims, even conflict between a tiny minority of Buddhist monks who are, who are um, rallying people to um, uh, burn mosques and drive Muslims out of their communities, terrible things. And fortunately, there are now a whole group of both beautiful and quite brave um, monastic elders who are standing up and really offering the teachings of tolerance and the teachings of respect and nonviolence that are at the core of the Buddhist awakening. 
but it's not very hard to touch in a population, especially uneducated. Don't forget uneducated. That happens here all the time. It's not hard to touch in us that primitive tribal reptilian fearful brain part, you know, and get everybody worked up. Oh, you have to be afraid of those people, whoever those people are. One of the stories from the Buddha's life tells of the hostilities between the neighboring countries of Magadha and Kaplavatu, where the Buddha's clan lived. And when the Chakya people realized that the king of Magadha was planning to attack them, they asked the Buddha to somehow go to him and, and implored him to try to make peace. And he went and he talked to the king and his army was preparing and it didn't work. So the Buddha went out by himself and sat, and this is the hot season in meditation, under a dead tree by the side of the road that led from the one kingdom to the other. And when the king of Magadha passed on the road with his army and saw the Buddha seated under the dead tree in the full blast of the hot season sun, he said, why do you sit under this dead tree? And the Buddha answered, I feel cool in my heart even under this dead tree because it is growing in my beautiful native country. And the sincerity of his answer, of this land he spoke of, pierced the heart of the king Recognizing the commitment and dedication the Shakyas felt for the land, he returned to his country with his army. Of course, that wasn't the end of the story. There were battles that followed. Sometimes the Buddha was successful, sometimes he wasn't. But he was trained as a warrior prince, and then he saw really what it was. And everybody knows this passage, but it's still worth reading another warrior who saw from General Dwight David Eisenhower, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. This, is, this world in armaments is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. It is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. And I say these things because it's Veterans Day. And if we look into Dharma, which means truth or the way things are or how we navigate this human life, this becomes a really critical question. I mean, we live in a warlike nation, in case you hadn't noticed. And in my lifetime, we pretty much had one war after another. Um, and it was going on long before I was born. Um, and so we have to think about, is there an alternative? Remember last week I read about Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who was a partner in the peace process and in the revolution with Mahatma Gandhi in trying to find liberation from the British colonialists. And he was in Afghanistan and assembled the largest peace army, army ever known on the earth. Um, 100,000 men, all devote Muslims, who vowed to resist British rule without weapons in their hands or violence in their hearts. 
He trained them the way Gandhi trained people. And they kept their vows despite death and great provocation and really contributed to the liberation of, of Afghanistan and India. Just so your imagination about the Afghanis who have tremendous dignity um, uh, see something bigger that's possible. Basically, the question is how do we solve conflict as human beings? Is there a better game than war? I think there's another kind of warrior. This is Martin Luther King. He says, never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in your struggles, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the weapon of love. And so it's a different kind of battle, if you will, or a different kind of warrior, using only the weapon of love. And when we think about it, as I say often, the outer development of humanity, extraordinary computers and nanotechnology and biotechnology and space technology has not been matched by inner development. We are the nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants, as one of the generals said. Um, and so continuing warfare and racism, environmental destruction, those aren't going to stop by outer economic changes and political changes. They require that we live differently as a species on this earth. Now the good thing is that it's possible for us as human beings to train ourselves to learn a different way. And I watched my colleague and friend and teacher Gosananda who became known as the Gandhi of Cambodia and led for 15 years peace marches and, and walks through the killing fields of Cambodia chanting loving-kindness and bringing people back to their villages through the practices of forgiveness. I lived with him in monasteries before that time, and he spent his days doing metta practice, morning and night. He would walk back and forth and chant the metta sutta, which is the Buddhist verses on loving-kindness. He would teach it to others. He steeped himself in it, so that when the 19 of the 20 people in his family were killed, his response was to go back and say, we have to teach our people to love. It's possible, even though it sounds difficult or remarkable. It's possible, and we can learn to do it. With mindfulness, this is the Buddha's words, one who is in conflict or is about to admonish another, must reflect first on five qualities. In due season will I speak. In truth will I speak, not falsehood. Gently will I speak, not harshly. To their benefit will I speak, not to anyone's loss. And with kindly intent will I speak, and not with hatred. 
Sounds like a good idea, right? Okay, I mean, when you think about the conflict in your life, anybody have conflict? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> conflict is natural, right? But what are you going to do with it? Maybe you could turn it into tango instead of war. That's really the question. And there are all kinds of warriors. When Martin Luther King speaks about using the weapons of love, I think of that story I read last week of the mothers of the plaza in Argentina, the, the feminine becoming the, the carriers of this wisdom. Or my friend Arturo Bihar, who is the chief technology officer at Facebook and one of the vice presidents there, um, who, as I've told this story in other nights, <clears throat> among other things, he is the person responsible for fixing the problems on Facebook. So he's the kind of complaints department. Which, and he said when you have 980 million users, it doesn't take long to get a million complaints. <laughs> right? Think about it. One third of them are technical engineering complaints. Easy. Send them to the engineers, the engineers fix it. That's what engineers do, right? Two-thirds of them are interpersonal complaints. I don't like that picture you posted of me. I didn't look good in it. I don't like the fact that you posted a picture of my kids. How dare you? I don't like what you said, whatever. So at first, <clears throat> they would send their boilerplate policy. Facebook will take down comments that are lewd, lascivious, illegal in this fashion or other. Otherwise, we leave it up. But here's what we will do. But people were still rather unsatisfied. And he realized that the best thing would be to get people to actually talk to one another. So then he made a new protocol that he sent out that said, if you have a problem with another user, I suggest you contact them directly. And first, as you, you know, on Facebook them, um, would you tell them what it was like for you, what your experience was in seeing the thing that disturbed you? And while you do that, tell them how it felt. But then he realized they don't know how they feel a lot of times. So he sent out little emoticons, smiley, <laughs> sad, angry, whatever. It's kind of, okay, here's how you might have felt. Okay, upset, whatever. Then he realized that's not a very complete communication in terms of conflict solving, whatever. So he added, and then you might ask them what was their intent, what made them do that. So he said, in doing that, all of a sudden, people would start to get answers back like, well, I thought you looked good in that picture, you know, or that your kids look great, or I didn't know that would bother you, or, or something. And 85% of the time, or more, people took it down. They just needed to be talked to. Um, and then he said, all of a sudden, I realized that I had the opportunity to teach social and emotional intelligence and conflict resolution skills to 980 million people. <laughs> yeah, this is, the, this is the reality that just as we have a primitive brain structure, you know all about it, you've noticed it in there, right? Um, we also have the capacity as a human being in this mysterious human incarnation to step back with mindfulness, with understanding, to begin to train ourselves to be in the presence of conflict or difficulty or pain or joy, all the things that make up life, 
with wisdom, with graciousness. And mindfulness self, the meditations that we're doing, um, are now spreading, as everybody knows, mindfulness has become kind of a big industry. I only wish I'd gotten stock options early on, but anyway. There's programs for social and emotional learning in 5,000 school systems, and the neuroscience that shows that emotional regulation, steadying of attention, inner resiliency, um, coming back to balance after difficulty, less caught in conflict and so forth, that these things can be learned over a course of weeks of training and practice. So the conflict will happen, it's natural. What we need then is to learn the capacities of centering and attention and listening in a different way and perhaps of love, as Martin Luther King says, so that we can work with these conflicts as human beings um, in an entirely different fashion than we have. Hello, Siri. I just received the latest program, Love 4.0. You know the freeware. Can you help me tell me how to install it? Certainly, sir. Love is a unique program like none other in the world. It attaches to your operating system, runs silently in the background, and has an effect on every other application you may have. That sounds great. How does it work? Well, Good sound files like compliment.com, encouragement.org, and kindword.wave will play frequently. Also, forgiveness.x will be invoked every time there's an external violation. Love allows for a smooth connection with external devices, regardless of the age of the model. That's just what I need. My machine has been isolated too long. What about the bad programs? Ah. Siri says, love searches your memory for programs like hate.com, bitterness.x, selfishnessandspite.org. While these programs can't be entirely deleted off your hard drive, love overpowers these programs and stops their commands from being executed. That's fine. I think I'm ready to install it now. What do I have to do first? Well, where is this? Oh, the first, to open your, your love program, um, you have to see what else is running. Oh, I have several programs running right now. Is it okay to install while they're running? Well, what are you running, sir? Let's see, I have pasthurts.com, lowesteem.org, grudge.x, and resentment.com running right now. Ah, no problem, says Siri. Love will automatically erase past hurt from your current operating system. It may remain in your permanent memory, but no longer disrupt other programs. It will eventually overwrite low esteem with a module of its own called higher esteem. <laughs> However, you have to completely turn off grudge and resentment.com. Those programs prevent love from operating properly. I, I can go on. <laughs> So if your damn computers can do it, they are, after all, a creation of the human mind and spirit. This is what's possible. And whether it's the neuroscience that we do or the healthy parenting, you know, or the web of community that you were brought up in that had the values of, of humanity and compassion and care, 
These are things that we can learn. And in this mystery of human incarnation, mindfulness and compassion, which really means to step back with loving awareness and say, what is this? What do I do with this, that I'm born in this human life, in this human incarnation? How do I guide myself in a way that brings happiness, because we all are actually seeking happiness in our ways, to myself and benefit and benefit to others? And to begin to meditate, as we did tonight and as some of you do in a regular way, is to take your seat and come back to these profound capacities of compassion and love and presence, whether you call it you know, installing in the hard drive or turning on the program, it's remembering, it's reminding yourself that this is your home. O nobly born, say the Buddhist text, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. Remember your capacity for wakefulness. Remember the great heart of compassion that was born in you. Do not forget it. Now, my teacher, Ajahn Chah, in his instructions for this, said if you want to do this, one of the first things you have to do is step out of the battle. Here were his words. We human beings are constantly in combat, at war to escape the fact of being so limited. Limited by so many circumstances we can't control. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering waging war with evil, waging war with what's not right, waging war with good, waging war with what's too small or too big, waging war with what's too short or too long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. Why not step off the battlefield is the invitation. And when you begin to train yourself, you feel your breath, you sense your body seated halfway between heaven and earth, you begin to rest in the space of loving awareness. You stop the war. You step back, you say, ah, here's the conflict, here's the longing, here's the desire, here's the pain in the body, here's the love, here's the creativity, here's the joyful impulse, all the things that make up your, ma- your humanity held in a gracious awareness that says, oh, yes, And then you have a choice. Otherwise, it's just habit. It's just immediate reactivity. But with the stillness, with quieting the mind and listening to the heart, then the deeper sensibilities of your own wisdom are available. I had a dinner this last week with a few other colleagues and friends. Um, And the guest of honor at the dinner was a guy named Ian McGilchrist, who um, uh, is, among other things, one of the world's great neuro- greatest neuroscientists. Um, very well-spoken, come from Scotland. Um, he had been a professor at Oxford of poetry and also read Humanities and the History of Civilizations. But then he said, I became intrigued by the mind-body problem. Um, And so I went to philosophy, had all kinds of things to say about various philosophers. Then I went to medical school. Um, Then I decided to study the brain, and he spent 20 years studying as a neuroscientist the structures of the brain and the different dimensions of consciousness, and wrote this big fat book that's quite, I haven't finished it, but that's quite amazing, called The Master and His Emissary, which is about um, 
Well, a couple decades ago, it was simply expressed and very too simplistically as left brain, right brain. But this is a much more sophisticated analysis of the different states of consciousness that arise from different dimensions of this human operating system and hardware that we have of left and right brain. And the gist of it um, is that, of course, there is primarily left brain functions of logical capacity, structure, linear. One of the things about left brain kind of thinking is that it always thinks it knows. It dismisses the right brain. It's not really very serious. I know, I understand. It's logical, it's linear, I've got my list, I know how they, and it divides things and so forth. And it's very good at solving engineering problems. Um, and then the capacities of right brain um, are intuitive, relational, um, they're visionary, they're the dimensions of the mind that are poetic, artistic, that make meaning, that are more timeless. But the point isn't that one is better than the other, that actually these are dimensions that are part of your human incarnation. And the point is to develop an integration that allows both of these dimensions to be available to you as an individual and as a society. And then he went into this whole rap about the flourishing of civilizations when these two were part of the society and the the downfall of civilizations when the left brain, which marches its armies out um, and conquers territory and thinks in um, gross national product numbers and, you know, he went through Greeks and Rome and China and all these things, talking about the, the historical ways, both the successes and the failures, depending on which parts of our humanity that we engage with one another. Now the beautiful thing, and sort of had some conversation about this, is that the trainings of loving awareness, the foundations of mindfulness, which is a loving awareness of body, feelings, of mind and the way it operates, and of the relations of things, the trainings of loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, these are trainings that integrate the different dimensions of our brain and mind. They integrate what's called clear comprehension together with compassion. They integrate wise seeing and discriminating wisdom together with loving kindness. And they bring perspective of, of interdependence. So when I listen to them and we're in this conversation, it's like, all right, this is all great. This is how the structure works and this is when it operates well and this is when it doesn't. But what do you do with that information? Guess what? you come to Spirit Rock. <laughs> you go on retreat, or you go somewhere. You learn, the, you learn the practices that allow you each day or in the rhythm of your life to quiet your mind, open your heart, to connect um, the dimension of meaning and vision and relational understanding with the specifics of the tasks and the problems that you have to solve to have those two in an integrated way. O nobly born, remember who you really are. Wisdom and love are there for you. They are part of your innate nature, an original dignity and an original capacity for love is in you. And when you practice 
and it takes practice. You lose it, and it's like practicing anything, practicing an instrument, practicing that beautiful flute that Mindy played. Um, I'm sure it took quite a bit of practice to get those extraordinary sounds um, and mistakes and so forth. But as you practice, you realize, oh, I can use this even in difficulty. I can use this to stay centered rather than reactive. Um, I can use this to see a bigger picture rather than get lost and take things so personally. Not only can I do this, but as I learn this, the field of interconnectedness starts to change around you. So as Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh says, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. So your understanding of this affects the family, community, the circles around you. So you sense it's possible. You begin to train yourself. You discover the capacity to be with joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain and gain and loss, praise and blame, with a more gracious heart. I mean, you're going to have those things anyway, right? How do you want to do it? And then, when you sense that it's possible, you practice it a bit, then it's too late for you. <laughs> Which is to say, after you see that, what are you going to do? Go out and cultivate hatred and greed and fear and confusion? Once you see it's possible, you're hooked. I mean, you forget it. Of course you forget it. But you realize... This is a way we can live as human beings, individually, communally, collectively. And so you become what in the Buddhist terminology is called a bodhisattva, um, at least in the most common use of that word. It's a compound word. Bodhi means awakening, liberated, and sattva is being. You become a being whose life is directed toward awakening or liberation or well-being for yourself and others. And there are all these stories of kind of archetypal stories of bodhisattvas, you know, how they practice patience and truthfulness and dedication and, and wisdom and compassion and so forth for a hundred thousand mahakalpas of universes as long as, well, the Dalai Lama wakes up in the morning at 3.30 and starts with his prayers from Shantideva May I be a bridge, a raft, a boat for those to cross the flood. May I be medicine for the sick and food for the hungry. May I be a resting place for the weary. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a light to illuminate the path for those who've lost the way. May I be a source of inspiration and nourishment. May I offer myself as long as earth and sky and suns and moons and galaxies exist for the well-being of all that we might awaken as long as it takes that we awaken together. Some beautiful vow like that. So that's kind of the, the big bodhisattva vow. But it doesn't have to be that complicated. Um, when you look in the Zen ox herding pictures, which is this famous account of liberation in, in uh, pictographs in the Zen tradition, in these beautiful 
calligraphy, um, the the ox of taming the ox of one's true nature. You go wandering around the forest and find it, and go through all these adventures. And the very last of these pictures shows this happy monk, as they as only they can draw in the beautiful Chinese and Japanese Zen calligraphy, with a big smile and a staff, walking into town, and says, "I enter the marketplace with." Bliss bestowing hands. So no longer out in search of every, anything, but having found a peacefulness and joy, a loving awareness that's really your true home. Then you go into the marketplace, the wine shop, wherever it is, it says, and bring that spirit of love. Bliss bestowing hands. Now, you might say, well, Kind of fanciful, isn't it? I mean, turn on the news, dude. Look how bad it is, you know. How much violence, how much remaining injustice, how much racism, how much conflict, and so forth. Um, as I've said over this last couple of years, one of the books that has inspired me quite a bit is Steven Pinker's book, um, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which is, again, a very large tome um, that has historical, anthropological, um, scientific data, all different kinds of fields, sociological, put together. Um, and the subtitle of it is something like, Why There Has Been a Decline of Violence in the World, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And it's a description with a lot of data of the last few hundred years that shows the gradual reduction worldwide in slavery, <clears throat> even though there still is slavery, it's way less than it's been, and it's not okay generally <clears throat> in human culture now to have slaves. Um, the, the reduction in child abuse, the reduction in the abuse of gays and lesbians, um, the uplifting of women and um, respect for girls and women, the, the the reduction in murders and lynching and the reduction in wartime violence, even though there's still plenty of it, the curves are declining. Um, and it's tremendously heartening to read it. Because in some way, it gives us a sense that this development that's required individually in each of your lives and collectively in our life at this time on the planet is possible. Even though we go through ups and downs and it can be at times seem hope, you know, hopeless or terrible. <clears throat> it's not. And the bodhisattva functions as an, uh, like an imaginal cell. Anybody ever heard of imaginal cells? A few of you might. Yes. So um, when a caterpillar makes a cocoon, um, in order to, a chrysalis, in order to metamorphize itself into a butterfly, it doesn't just sprout wings, you know, because if you look at a butterfly, there's like a little caterpillar part with the wings on it and so forth. It doesn't do that. It gets inside the chrysalis and then it dissolves into a liquid, a liquid of protoplasm and cells that's not that old structure at all. And then in floating in that liquid, there's a handful of cells that biologists have named imaginal cells. It's a perfect name for it. That begin to collect other cells around them 
and build the structures of wings and body for a butterfly. So there you are floating in your cocoon, you know, with no organization at all. And a few cells say, hey, we could fly. Come on, guys, you know, and start to grab. Um, and in a certain way, when you carry the spirit of loving awareness, when you've begun to trust it in yourself, and cultivate and develop it, of mindfulness and compassion that you can stay present and gracious, you become an imaginal cell in the culture for what's possible around you. Live in joy, in love, instructs the Buddha, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still. Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of living in the way. And when you look out to see other imaginal selves, that is, other bodhisattvas, you see that there's a thousand different forms. Preschool teachers, you know, and conscious business people and artists, and, you know, you see the Dalai Lama, who's lived through tremendous tragedy and then still has this gracious, joyful spirit. Why should I let them take my happiness, he says, even with all that suffering. Or Aung San Suu Kyi coming out of 17 years of house arrest. They never had me in prison because I never hated them. You know, or Wangari Mathai, who won the Nobel Prize and helped people plant a million trees in Kenya. You know, or Rigoberto Mengshu from Guatemala. Or, or, or Betty Williams, who won the Nobel Prize in Ireland after seeing, um, in some terrible way, four children get murdered, you know, in some fight between the Irish Republican Army, whatever, the, the, the battle between the Protestants and the Catholics. Um, and she said, I can't, couldn't stand it any further, and got other women and mothers to come out. And 10,000 people came out that week. And then they were attacked by the military on both sides, saying, oh, they were pawns of the other side. The following week, they had 35,000 women come out, you know. So these are the imaginal cells of, of our humanity and of our culture. And when you read the stories of bodhisattvas, Vimalakirti, um, who's this bodhisattva, sometimes they're in a male form, he would go into the hospital and pretend to be sick so he could give Dharma instructions to the doctors and nurses. Because <laughs> they needed it, they lost their way. Then he would go into the tavern and sit there and give Dharma instructions to all those who were drinking there. They're, they're the hidden bodhisattvas, you don't know who they are. Seriously. I mean, you could be meeting there in that shop or, you know, at the gas station or wherever. They could be the hidden great bodhisattva of the world. The cooks, the laborers. Ursula Le Guin, wonderful writer, she says, love doesn't just sit there like a stone. It has to be made like bread, remade all the time, made anew, fresh bread every day. And so you see people serving as bodhisattvas. Sometimes 
the images of the Bodhisattva, the one that's here on your left, this great tanka that came from Ladakh on the border of Tibet in India, is of Avalokiteshvara, or in China known as Kuan Yin, um, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, depicted she has a thousand pairs of eyes, a thousand hands. My daughter, when she was little, came over here and counted to see if it was really true. A thousand feet. And the thousand hands and the thousand eyes are to see the beings of the world, to hear the cries of the world, um, and then immediately to respond. Because the way of the bodhisattvas is very simple. If somebody's hungry, you make food. If they're thirsty, you bring water. It's like that vow from the Dalai Lama. Very, very simple. And then you go where you go. And the bodhisattvas go everywhere. They go to the realm of the hungry ghosts, which is to say, there are bodhisattvas in Las Vegas. <laughs> there are, you know. And at 12-step meetings, which is another land of the hungry ghosts. And they go to hell. And so I met with some friends here who are part of the movement for a nonviolent peace force who are sending, they've been working in south, southern Sudan and in Mindanao and so forth, they're sending a group to Syria. And their idea is to, they've been trying to create a 10 to 20,000 person standing peace army, like Ghaffar Abdul Ghaffar Khan, standing peace army of people who are really well trained in conflict resolution, who have um, language trainings, cultural trainings, all the best kind of trainings, and who are sent in teams into areas of conflict before the conflict gets out of control to stand between the lines and to begin to train people to listen to one another, like Arturo at Facebook, to hear why did you do that, to train people to listen and to show them that there is another way to solve the problem beside killing one another. And so it's growing slowly, but it's fantastic vision, a world standing peace army. So they go to hell which is Syria at the moment, or hungry ghosts. They go teach in heaven too. I'm about to go <clears throat> and do a retreat with Ramdas on Maui. <clears throat> and I have to say that over the years I have taught in Hawaii, and of course I love Hawaii and it's beautiful. It's not always an easy place to teach. With Ramdas it'll be easy because he's just teaching love. So really go and they'll have their, you know, day on the beach and then sit and chant and sing and they'll be happy. But to go, and teach, <clears throat> to go and teach a meditation retreat and have people sit silently and sit and walk and sit and walk for a week being with their own breath and body, it's not that easy, you know. As somebody said that on the second day of a retreat, I'm, I'm, it's like I'm locked in a phone booth with a lunatic, right? <clears throat> Let me out of here, right? And on Hawaii, what would happen is that people would say, well, you know, it looks like it's going to be a great sunset, and there's some mangoes ripening on the tree over there, and why should I sit here with my knee hurting or my mind restless or telling stories? Why don't I just go down to the beach? Things seem to be, it's hard to teach in the heaven realms, but somebody has to do it, right? So it's very sad. Or the animal realms, and in part our humanity our, our genuine humanity is tied up in how we treat the other sentient beings of this earth. Yes, there's global warming and extinction of species 
Um, and uh, all the other kinds of um, suffering that humans create for animals, as Chief Seattle says, what happens to the beasts happens to man, that they're not separate from us. What is life, asks Crowfoot, Blackfoot Indian. It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in winter. It is as the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And there's a kind of poignancy and delicacy to this sensibility of someone who lives so close to the land and sees that we are animals. We live in an animal body. And so the Bodhisattva enters all these realms and sets within themselves a sacred intention turns the compass of their heart to say, well, all right, I've got a human incarnation. What do I do with it? I mean, what do you want to do with it? Diane Ackerman, friend, wonderful poet. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. And of course it sounds like then you have to become this kind of grandiose figure. Okay, now I'm the bodhisattva, you know, going out. But it's the small things that matters. As Tennessee Williams wrote, the violets in the mountains have broken the rocks. And the smallest gesture, you know, sometimes you know it and sometimes you don't. You just serve in the best way that you can. I had this uh, letter that was sent to me. See if I can find it here. Where are you? Oh well, I'll tell the story. It was sent by a person who was flying from India to Malaysia, got there, it was the hot season, landed at, at, at the airport. The air conditioning wasn't working, there were really long lines. <clears throat> it looked like the immigrations people were really grouchy and there were lots of kids who'd obviously been standing in line a long time and were melting down. People were going through you know, all the things that crowded, hot, traveling for a long time, people do. And, and he said he started to get really, really irritated. Oh my God, how long will it take? I'm going to be in this line for two hours. I won't get there. And he noticed how much suffering his, he was creating in his mind. So he said, all right, I'll do metta. I'll do loving kindness practice. And he just started looking around and wishing well to those kids and to that mom who had to take care of those four kids and to that old man there and that woman there and that. And he said, after about 15 minutes, I started to feel cheerful and I did more and more metta and I sat down and I was happier in the situation. Yes, it was hot. Metta for all the people who were sweating. Yes, it was difficult. Metta for all the people in the world who were having to wait, which is like, you know, actually waiting is a state of mind. People sit and meditate. Waiting, 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 waiting for what? You know, like that first poem I read, this is life, the quotidian is your life. 
And so he did it for all the people who wait around the world and all those who are travelers. By the time he got up to the immigration, he was kind of, you know, in a great place. And there was a sort of harried immigration officer. He said an older guy with a mustache and stamping and looking over papers. He looked up, he said, at me. And he said, my, my friend, what a beautiful smile you have. I welcome you to Malaysia. <laughs> Stamped his passport and sent him right through. He wrote me this letter and big red letters at the bottom. It works. You know? <laughs> so it's not just the big things, but it's the little ones as well. You plant seeds. You take your practice whatever serves your practice, your loving kindness, your compassion, your awareness, your ability to be with the measure of tears and sorrow and losses that is in your life and to be with the unbearable beauty of life and to hold them and sit as the Buddha, say yes to bow to them, and then you get up and you plant seeds. And Henry David Thoreau says, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect miracles. And so it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the secret is, I love this pause, right? Eight dollars worth for your secret. The secret is to act well without attachment to the fruits of the action. To plant the seeds, sometimes you'll see the fruit of it in these beautiful ways, like that man in the airport in Malaysia. Sometimes you won't, but you scatter your seeds. You're kind of Johnny Bodhisattva seed or whatever. (laughs) Or I'd say Jenny Bodhisattva seed, right? Do not depend on the hope of results, says Thomas Merton. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so the orientation of this life becomes sourced from wisdom, from love for the beings of this earth that you share, from mystery, from the tentativeness of life. And you realize that there is a way to live wisely. There's a way to solve conflicts. There's a way to bring beauty alive. And you become the carrier of that for yourself, for what you love, and for the earth. And so this is the little invitation for meditation for you. And you notice it's not about some special meditative state. It's really about the awakened heart that is who you really are. Let's sit for a moment.
And if you are to set the compass of your heart with your own bodhisattva vow, maybe as simple as I vow to be kind, I vow to pay attention, to be present for this mysterious life. I vow to learn to love or whatever your vow might be. Listen to your heart, it will tell you. I thank you for your support, for your kind attention, um, for your participation in the beauty of sitting together in silence on this evening. Um, as you go out into the autumn cool air and dark night, drive politely out there, it's quite crowded, um, and carry the, the, the scent of the temple in your heart. And um, I'm going to be traveling myself for some weeks, and I'll see you next month. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.